All right, three, two, one. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. What's going on, Sheikh? Good to see you. How are you? Alhamdulillah. Good Alhamdulillah. to come up to MIC and see you. Um, when I first saw you on uh, the the Tiza, uh, you know, Zoom call that we did for class. I assumed you were just a few years older than me, to be honest. I didn't think that you were any ma'am and you got kids and, you know, stuff is going on in your life. I thought you were just a fellow classmate. Hold on. So, so you're, you're assuming that if I don't have a wife and kids, I don't have anything going on in my life? Is that what? Well, I mean, I, I just, I, I thought you were like me, you know, you just, just a single dude, you know, studying Islam and then also has, you know, probably working, doing something. Uh, so th that's what I assumed was the situation. Uh, but you're, you know, you're, you're working at a, you're the YQ successor. Uh, no. No? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I work I work at the same masjid that YQ did, yeah, but uh -huh. um, there's no <laughs> there's no successor. <laughs> okay. So th there's like um uh there's a couple of imams here, mashallah, at MIC. Yeah, there's uh so you're a co-imam. Kind yeah. of. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's not a it's not a co We're just imams, you know, helping each other out. Mashallah. And there's yeah. three of you. Yeah, yeah. So myself, um Sheikh Muhammad Faqih and Sheikh Yasser Fazaga. Mashallah. That's solid, mashallah. Yeah, I'm, I'm from small town America. I'm not familiar with the, the co-imam setup. You know, where I'm from, there's there's one imam per masjid. Or if, if there's if, an imam, right? Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, if they have an imam. Some masajid, you know, miskin, they're, they're like, you know, whoever from the community, ta'al, you know, leave Yeah, part-time. Yeah. He's not officially designated. He just shows up when he can. So, alhamdulillah, mashallah. Uh, and it's a very, very large masjid, mashallah. This is uh, the, the setup you got here. You got like six doors to, to get in. There's like... The, you know, there's I'm coming in here and I'm seeing there's like uh, multiple rooms. There's a, a massive ballroom, which is right down from from here. There's the sister side, which is upstairs. It's a, and, and it's very, very progressive, actually. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've been to Masajid where the, the sister side is uh, heavily tinted. You know, the there's <laughs> you can't you can't even uh, see what's what's on, what's in there. Uh, this, you know, mashallah, it's like, OK, there's glass, but, you know, you, it's you could see. Yeah. And it's, it's not like, oh, you see a girl. I'm like, oh, Mustafallah, haram. You know what I mean? So it's, uh, I like the setup, you know? And, and there's no, there's no, obviously no, no, no designated woman's entrance. I mean, I don't know if that's really a big deal anyway, if there was, but I'm just saying like, it's a, uh, the, you got a progressive setup going on. Who, who's in charge here? Is that you? <laughs> you did this? So, yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't call it progressive, mm -hmm. right? Um, <laughs> a progressive message would look very different than this. Yeah, um, the term probably isn't a good term because, you know, people use it in different ways. Yeah. Like there's uh, the the Muslims for Progressive Values Movement, MPV, and, you know, they got all kinds of stuff going on. So, uh, yeah, you know, but this is, I, I would say, maybe modern. I think the term that uh, uh, Sheikh Asakadi uses is uh, progressive traditionalists. No, no, forward thinking. Forward thinking traditionalists. That's yes. right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I think a classmate <laughs> changed it to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Someone someone changed it to, to, to P, uh, PT instead of uh, uh FT. Yeah. Yeah. So forward thinking uh traditionalist. Sure. I mean that's fine. Whatever whatever the label. We're not you know the thing is we're not labeling ourselves. We're just doing what we think is good for the community. No, I hear um, you. this was the setup before I showed up. Mm -hmm. Um but I don't I don't see a problem in it. So we have many sisters that will pray upstairs, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. in that place. Some sisters will come and pray behind the men here in the main musalla. It's not a problem. Mm -hmm. Obviously on the day of Friday that it gets extended way back so you saw like the scissors way back there or they can pray upstairs it's not a problem and then you also mentioned that you guys did have thanksgiving you know that 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 would cause an outrage in the community that i'm from if you and i actually i, I like to just uh you know prod a little bit so i i, I drop a happy, happy thanksgiving you know in the in the community chat 
and uh, instantly right after someone calls me and says, oh, "Brother Rashid, what you're doing is wrong," you, you know. And so it seems like you guys are further ahead in terms of, uh, uh, you know, Islam and modernity. So, uh, can you just talk about that? Like, how did you get to this stage? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call um, Thanksgiving modern. Right, right. <laughs> Mo- modern for the small town America. Right, right. Well, I was also going to say like the 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 actual proper term now is uh, Native American Heritage Day. Mm-hmm. Or something along those lines they're uh-huh. changing it you know because thanksgiving has negative connotations for native americans but anyways mm-hmm. and it we didn't so what we did was you know every year before covid so this is before i came to mic just to be clear mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> this predates me but i don't i don't see a problem with it necessarily um some people want to and the thing is like what you said you know some people if they hear you celebrating you know thanksgiving you know this is haram, you know yeah. all these things I get where they're coming from, right? I understand. Yani, if you want to be super strict, you know, only the two Eids, etc. Mesh. Are we doing it as a Eid? Are we celebrating? You know, this. It, it depends, Yani, on your. I think on on what it is that you're calling to. Obviously, we're not going to celebrate Christmas. <laughs> we're yeah. not going to do Halloween or anything like that or Easter. Um, Thanksgiving is one of those that's more of a national thing. Yeah. Yeah. Can we can we talk just about the specifics? about why some people consider haram. I understand there's the hadith about the two Eids. No. Right? And uh, what they take that as is, okay, this is that's it. Muslims celebrate these two, nothing else. And then there's, obviously, there's another paradigm that says that, you know, those are the two religious ones, and then we're allowed other ones in terms of secular holidays. And so, w- just if you could just sh- share a little bit about that, because the, the understanding that I'm familiar with is that there's one way of, of, of seeing it in terms of the, the, the two religious holidays. And then there's, uh, and, that's, uh, and, and that's just religious. That's what we do for religious holidays. And then you can do whatever you want with anything else. So, so what do you think about that? So um, there's this idea that Islam is anti-celebration, right? Mm-hmm. And this is wrong. Um, in fact, many of the Sahaba celebrated multiple things. You're allowed to celebrate the birth of a child through mm-hmm. an aqiqah. You're allowed to celebrate your wedding, you know, through a whatever. You're allowed to celebrate pretty much anything that's worthy of celebration. So we even have narrations where Umar ibn Khattab, when he finally finished at a very old age, memorizing Surah Al-Baqarah, he mm. was so happy that he slaughtered an animal, invited people for a walima, you know, for like a, a meal. So celebrating is fine. You know, would, would a person say, oh, this is bid'ah? Why are you celebrating, you know, memorizing one surah? None of the, well, the thing is, he's the companion. He's the one who's, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying that he's legislating. Right. But I'm saying that he's doing something that, you know what I mean, is allowed to do. So Islam isn't inherently against celebrations. Islam tells us that there has to be a reason, a cause to do something, you know, along those lines. Um, so something like Thanksgiving, wh- what is the cele- what, what does a celebration entail? Aslan. Even from an American point of view, I'll tell you from a purely American point of view, that has no religious connotations, neither Christian nor Islamic nor Jewish, Right. Are people celebrating? What What is the celebration of Thanksgiving? A lot of people, I, I would argue, it's actually lost on a lot of people. More people celebrate Black Friday, right? Or they mm. celebrate Cyber Monday or anything like that. More so than they're actually celebrating what Thanksgiving is actually meant to be. Right. Um, most of these holidays are commercial holidays. From a religious standpoint, um, if yani, we can get in, yani, there's obviously a lot of detail on how much, what would what would constitute a bid'ah, what wouldn't, etc., etc., Right. Are there any religious um, tuqus, which is religious rituals that are done on, right. on this holiday by anybody, by any group? Like, does anybody go to church? Does anybody go to a synagogue? 
Right. So what you're doing is you're looking at Thanksgiving in the lens of how is it practiced today rather than its roots. But what are its roots? Well, l- let's say that they are religious. Does that invalidate no, it? But are they? No, no, no. We're talking about very something very specific. We're not talking about hypothetical. We're talking about very something very practical. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Are the roots of Thanksgiving religious? Uh, I'm pretty sure they're not. They're not. Yeah, they're just, you know, Native Americans and whatnot. Not even that. It's a story that's told to kind of unite the country. Right. Right? The story isn't even real. That's why I'm saying it's Native American Heritage Day. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do... Yeah, the, the whole Thanksgiving in the way that is taught usually in schools actually never happened i hear right? you it's meant to be a national kind of commemoration of being thankful for the ability to come to this new country etc etc mesh that's fine does that right. make sense so it has yeah. zero zero religious connotations it's a national holiday do scholars allow national holidays for the most part across the world they allow them mm-hmm. um now there are a group of maybe some strict scholars who do not allow national holidays but even then, they allow them with certain caveats. It can't be on the same day every year. You know what I mean? It has to be a toned-down celebration, meaning I'm not yeah, going to the level of Eid. We're not exchanging gifts. Does anybody exchange a Thanksgiving gift? Mm. Eid is typically gift-giving. Even in Christmas, people are giving gifts. Thanksgiving, there's no gift-giving, right? So it's not even, even from an American point of view, it's not a full-on like celebration. It's a day of commemoration. Right, and, and, and there's also what I understand from, from uh, the recent YQ lecture, uh, well, not too recent. I think it was 2018. Uh, th- w- w- what he says is that there's a position that some scholars take is that when understanding whether or not a holiday is halal or haram, is that they they look at the roots of it, and then some look at the understanding today. But if you take something by its roots, a lot of stuff becomes haram. Sure. You know, like uh, if if you look at something that, like for example, the when the when the ladies they put henna on. Historically, that was like a, a, a Hindu Vedic practice. And so that would make it haram because historically, it's it, by its roots, it's haram. So it's the same reasoning they use for birthdays. The candles, oh, it's a pagan practice, so it's haram. Or the, the, the aqiqah itself, uh, wasn't that, I think, a, a pagan practice and then it became a, a Muslim practice, the aqiqah, when they slaughter on the day of the aqiqah. And then not necessarily. Not necessarily. But why? Because even though we say these have pagan practices mm-hmm. they actually probably originated in some monotheistic origin so hajj if you look at purely academically yeah um, all western academics would say yeah hajj hajj was a pagan ritual that was then co-opted by prophet muhammad but we don't believe that we believe that it started from ibrahim mm-hmm. through son ismail then later on it got paganized and then we islamicized it back again so even though I see something being pagan, that doesn't mean that it always was pagan. Right. Well, even then, like the... You understand what I'm saying? No, I hear you. But even then, right? It, like, do we take something by how it's understood originally by its roots or by the waqa' today, by the, the understanding in the modern context? And I think that the understanding from the, you know, Sheikh Hazakali was that based on a hadith that there was a man that used to slaughter at Bawana and they made a haram to slaughter at Bawana. And then when he became Muslim, he asked if he could go back and slaughter a camel there because he has a camel he wanted to slaughter. He said, do you still have the, the jahiliya of Bawana in your heart? He said, no. He said, then go. And so that's like a core piece of evidence that it's depend, dependent on how you understand something today rather than how it's understood historically. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but you have to understand it holistically. Yeah. You can't divorce one from the other. They're taken together. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is why I'm of the opinion I don't like birthdays personally mm-hmm. now, i'm not gonna go to the level to say it's haram it's bid'ah and stuff you know what i mean i'm not gonna <laughs> i hear you we'll we'll we'll, we'll do tabdi'ah of you know 80 percent of the ummah unfortunately mm. um 
but the thing is the reality is wh what's the origin of birthdays where do they come from you know what i mean who who first instituted them and why were they instituted and stuff like and then how is it practiced today i would argue the way that it's practiced today should lead a muslim to not do it what are we celebrating if you want to celebrate a birthday you should celebrate your mother who gave you birth on that day not you as an individual mm -hmm. you didn't do anything it's your mom who did all the work <laughs> so you should be going and kissing her feet and thanking her for all the good that she did for you not mm -hmm. celebrating you as a person because you didn't accomplish anything like Umar when he celebrated memorizing that surah he's celebrating an accomplishment this is something worthy of celebrating but you you just turned a year older what is that celebrating really that's why there's a lot of older even Americans they don't like birthdays because they realize it's just I'm now a year closer to death mm. I should be fearful for for yani, the, <laughs> my yeah. end is near I'm closer to death what am I doing in my life it should be introspection the Prophet ﷺ, when he used to fast on Monday when he was asked about it he said it's the day that I was born so he's commemorating it very differently you know he's fasting he's worried about it it's cause it's a cause for anxiety it should be mm. <laughs> instead of celebrating um, and so for kids I understand you want to you know encourages people etc but yeah that's that's something else I hear you. Let's go ahead and pause real quick for uh, for Sladat. Mm. But and this is how it was in the in the smaller old building, you know, where YQ was, because you know we this building opened for us in Ramadan, this mm. last Ramadan. But we were technically still we haven't had our officially grand opening yet, because as you can see, like a lot of the stuff is still being done. Mm. Like the the decorations here are not finished. There's still some stuff that needs to be done in the in the banquet hall. We still have stuff. So it's not it's not a finished project per se. I hear you. Um, so once we have the grand opening, YQ is already on on slate to come and visit. Because obviously he, nice. Yani this is a yani alhamdulillah. Obviously all favors from Allah subhanahu wa taala first and foremost. But second, yani this is the building that YQ helped build. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Soliciting the donations, you know, the vision for it, what we want to do. Um, you know, Memphis, Tennessee, if you think about it, in terms of city size, it's not that big compared mm. to some of these other cities. Um, but this building that we're in right now is going to be the second largest Sunni masjid in America. Wow. Once it's finished, we have a 55 acre campus, you know, a lot I'm of sure. programs. We're keeping it busy. We're trying, you know, three, three imams, I think is not enough. <laughs> wow. Mashallah. In the sense that we need, we have a lot of work that needs to be done. You know what I mean? In terms of the work, we have a full staff. I think we're understaffed in some ways. Mm. You know what I mean? We do need more. But at the end of the day, you know, our resources as a Muslim community everywhere in the country are somewhat limited and tightened. So we're trying to get into a position where um, we have sustainable programs. We have sustainable, you know, that sense of community, et cetera, et cetera. We're building it with 10, 15, 20, 30 years vision into the future. One one program that we're trying to do, not program, a project, for example, um, Senior senior home, Muslim Muslim seniors, a home for them, you know, which sadly enough, we do need it. There's a need for it. There's yeah. a lot of seniors in our community. Their children moved out. They don't live in the same state. They need, you know what I mean? Just a place, communal place to live. And a lot of other, you know, religions are doing this, faith mm. groups, um, where it would be right next to the masjid. They can come walking, you know, five da five daily prayers. We have stuff for them as well. We're not neglecting that segment. That's a future project that we need. Because a lot of times we think youth, youth, youth. Um, and that's all great and good and dandy. Hmm. Um, but it, a lot of times it comes at the expense of a lot of these marginalized groups. And, and so we need to be holistic. And we are, inshallah, trying to be holistic about you know, the vision. What do we want to do? So it's for total family life. 
you know what I mean? Yeah. Children, youth, prof- young professionals, families, and and our elders and seniors. I hear you. And how long have you been uh, imam here so far? Um, I've been here for almost two years now. Mashallah. Yeah. Well, what were you doing before that? What were you, were I was you... an imam as well at another okay. masjid. I was in Nashville for a year. Nice. And then before that, I was here in Memphis for a few years. Before that, I was in Salt Lake City, Utah. Nice. For a few years. <laughs> so, so this is where you started then, Salt Lake City? Salt Lake City. Okay. And and so were you always slated to become an imam? Were you always shooting for becoming an imam? What was the what was your life? Like it maybe say your, your early 20s, what was your life gearing towards? Yeah, so, I mean, when I was in college, obviously we were very active in our MSA, mm. um, which was a lot of fun. And it kind of geared us, shaped us into, you know what I mean? It, 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 I fell in love with MSA work. And so we mm. kind of, after I graduated... Um, I was working, you know, uh, IT um, here and there, technician, um, stuff like that. And um, what did you study? I studied film studies. Okay. At the at the U. Um, but I try. I went to I went to LA for a summer mm. <laughs> to try to work, but it didn't work. You know what I mean? I didn't. I didn't want to sell out my values and and do something that you know what I mean. I was I was gonna regret. This isn't. Right. This, this doesn't align with what I want to do. You know. Right. So. Um. So I came back and I was kind of doing my own thing. We became more active in the masjid until one day the imam in the masjid resigned um, abruptly. This is, you know, a few years after graduating. Mm. Um, but I've been helping at the masjid. I was part of the youth group. We were teaching Sunday school. We were doing summer camps for the kids. And then the community asked me, hey, can you be at least temporarily until we find somebody more, you know, full time? Because we know you have a job. You have, I'm like, okay, sure. And then temporary turned into okay, we'll just bring you on part-time, and then part-time became full-time, mm. and then, you the know, rest things is history. happen. The rest is history. Yeah. And then you're doing this, and you're like, oh, man, you know. And my Islamic, my journey for Islamic knowledge, you know, was, was um, you know, I had been doing it for myself, you know what I mean? Taking classes here, courses yeah. there, doing stuff, you know. So, alhamdulillah. MashaAllah. So, uh, were you, what, what kind of seeking of Islamic knowledge were you doing? Did you... Get a degree in something? Did you go to some some sort of seminar? I I mean, you're you're at Tiza now with me, um, and you're I think you're about to graduate. So what were you what were you doing at this stage in your life in terms of seeking Islamic knowledge? Yeah, so I mean, we would we <laughs> we had a thirst, Alhamdulillah, and may Allah subhanahu wa taala allow it to continue for for knowledge. You know what I mean? Start a very early age. Yeah. Um, you know, when my family moved to to Gaza, I was eight years old. You know, my parents sold. The house, the cars, <laughs> my dad quit his job, moved to Gaza, and he started a business over there, and we went. My mother was teaching English. We enrolled in the schools, and initially, I didn't know a lick of Arabic. And mm-hmm. then, you know, little, little by, by, you know, you learn, you know, we enrolled in schools. Um, we started in the Tafil program. Um, and alhamdulillah, we progressed from there. You know, by the, by, I was in third grade, by, you know, alhamdulillah, fourth grade, I was proficient in Arabic. Um, we started, you know, Tajweed. I was, by sixth grade, I was certified in, you know, Tajweed, Ahkam al-Tajweed and, and stuff like this. And we were memorizing. Um, Alhamdulillah, you know, we had family there. My grandfather, I think my grandfather in a lot of ways is my first teacher because he was an activist, you know what I mean, in Gaza. He did a lot of stuff. Um, he started, you know, the Tahfiz program there. He, he um, one of the founders, meaning from the 1970s, mm. you know, and in that same time, he's one of the founders of Legendat Zakat Gaza, you know, the Zakat Foundation, where they would collect the candy strip because there was nothing. You're under occupation, you know, Israeli yeah. occupation. You have to do what you have to do. So they would do that. Um, so he's a very active individual. He started that um, 
but living with him, you know, learning from him. And, and then Alhamdulillah, I was blessed with him, him, you know, my grandfather and my grandmother living with me when I was in college mm. for a few years. Um, so that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Benefiting from him and his knowledge, you know what I mean? Every day, seeing what he's doing. He would give nightly lectures at the masjid. This is even before I was an imam. Um, talk, so I'm translating for him. I'm asking him questions. You know, we're verifying his going through stuff. Um, and then us, you know, after this, I also traveled, you know, um, overseas. I went to Kuwait for a little bit. Um, what did you back. study in Kuwait? Same thing, Islamic studies. Okay. Um, so we came back and then, um, alhamdulillah, I realized once, once, once I actually did become an imam, the community did approach me and they're like, hey, you need to get an official degree. We need to make all your knowledge official. So I did. I enrolled. Um, GTF, I got, you know what I mean? I finished my bachelor's in Islamic studies and then I wanted to continue. I wanted something more rigorous. It wasn't as rigorous as I thought it would be. Um, and I, so I would sit down with YQ and YQ was like, you can go overseas. I don't recommend it. If you wait a little bit, we'll, we're going to start TISA. And I'm like, what's TISA? Oh, wow. He's <laughs> like, yeah, we're starting this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this is at the cusp, like the year before he's about to leave. And I realized like he, he left Memphis primarily for TISA. Mm. Um, also other reasons you know for his for his um parents because they're in texas and, yeah and now they live with him you know alhamdulillah, Mashallah. which is a good thing so um he was like yeah you know we'll do tisa tisa is a unique you know kind of setup it's not it's something that's very american but also very islamic at the same time and we're not necessarily progressive um we're not you know divorcing the tradition we're, we're rooted in the tradition but it's something that's tailored for for an american Imam, an American student of knowledge, an American person who wants because you, you can go overseas. There's not, there's not a lot of, um, you know what I mean, uh, things that are necessary for you know what I mean. We have a lot of graduates from universities overseas. When they come here, it's very difficult for them to put this together. So. Right, the the customs isn't taken to an, uh, yeah, yeah. to account. We can pause for Salat al Dhuhr real yeah, quick yeah. and, and we'll go jump ahead, back inshallah. in. Inshallah. Okay, so. Uh, so Sheikh Hasakali left to East Plano, right? And he's he's at the the epic masjid, East Plano Islamic Center. Um, uh, in terms of Memphis, though, uh, how are things going here lately? Like as of recent events, how are things going in Memphis with MIC? Oh, alhamdulillah. I mean, I think Memphis is great. You know what I mean? Um, we have you know the the project MIC as you see it. Um, you know, community is growing. Alhamdulillah. Um, we have we have a, a unique um, setup in the sense that we are a large small town, mm. Memphis. Right? I hear you. It's not a it's not a large city. We're not New York or Los Angeles, but at the same time, we're not a small town where we don't have the resources that we need. You can you know what I mean? It is it is an established city. Uh, Muslim community is very old here, um, and um, I think it's very unique in the sense that number one. All of the masajid cooperate with each other, all of them, without exception. Um, in fact, during COVID, we had a, a united task force. We all met together. Nice. We took our decisions together. Um, so like when, you know, the lockdown, we closed it. We even closed before there was an official lockdown. Mm. Um, you know, uh, six feet, you know, all the different protocols, et cetera. We came together. We did them together. So alhamdulillah, masajid cooperate, which is a huge benefit. And th this is one of the things that attracted me to come to Memphis, right? Mm. The fact that the masajid cooperate. They have a well-established uh, Islamic school. A lot of the graduates get into top-tier universities. We have a good track record. You know what I mean? Islamic studies, we try to, you know, emphasize it, et cetera. Um, 
you know, a city like Memphis, it's it for it to attract somebody like, let's say, for example, like you, mm. Yasser Qali. For him to come here, it has to have something good, you know, obviously. And right. he did. He when he came, I don't know if I if I mentioned this before to you. Um, Yaki, when he first came to Memphis, he only and he's on record saying this. He only thought that he would be here for maybe three, four years. Mm. And ended up being here like almost nine, ten years. He was wow. here in Memphis, which is a huge. Yeah, that's a big amount of time for him to settle down. He has roots here. His family still has roots here. Um, so he just liked the the community. He liked the masjid. He liked the folks that were here. Everything, the city. You know what I mean? Just the vibe. You know the the environment. Um, the fact that. Um, because some masajid, you'll have 500, 600 people coming to the masjid. That's great, but you can get lost. <laughs> yeah. There's no sense of community anymore. You know, in, in, in some ways, you know, you won't get to know the other brother. You know, I mean, there's a lot of strangers. And too small of a community, there's not a lot going on. It's the same right. five brothers that are doing everything. Whereas right. I think we have a good, you know, size where things are happening. You know, and we do have a larger community. Um, How are the uh, interfaith relations? I heard recently, I think Omar brought it up in class one time, that there was a masjid that they tried to establish outside of Memphis, and the city council blocked it. In Mississippi. So, okay, so is it near? I'm blaming it on Mississippi. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> we're in Tennessee. No, I hear you. So, so what, what happened like with that one, like the... Like in terms of interfaith relations, is this is this particularly you know an, a racist area? Maybe is this no no, is, no okay no no we're first off we're in the south mm-hmm. right um, we're in the Bible Belt and Memphis is the buckle of the belt right uh-huh. so <laughs> we're <laughs> we're like dead center many churches did hesitate to work with many massages across the street from us here at MIC there's Heart Song. I don't know if you've seen the video. They've done a few documentaries about the relationship between Heart Song and MIC. Mm, I haven't seen it. I'll show it to you, inshallah ta'ala. Sure. And then you can post a link to it on your on the thing. Um, one was made by Starbucks because it was, a, it was a unique story in the sense that a church came together with a mosque. This isn't a story that you hear all the time. Mm. Um, initially, when the masjid, when the church, because it's across the street, when they heard that there's a masjid opening up next door, they were furious. They were like, what? We can't yeah. allow this to happen. Those guys are terrorists. That's literally what they thought. Um, and the pastor, Steve, Steve uh, Stone, amazing guy. I mean, I'm friends with him now. Um, stand-up guy. He know, I mean, he's not like, you know, he's not, he knows there's differences between us, but he also knows that his Christian faith compels him to be a good neighbor regardless mm. and to be tolerant and to be accommodating. And, of course, as Muslims, we believe the same thing. Um, so people Did- in his congregation actually fought him. Why are you guys wow. being nice to the Muslims? They didn't know anybody from the Muslims, so they put up a sign, Heart Song Church welcomes the Memphis Islamic Center. Wow. And then that. that's how the relationship began. And now we have a 20-acre plot of land right here between MIC and Heart Song mm. that's designated as a, the Friendship Park. Wow. And it's actually already, you know, they, they bought the land, they're, they're going to you know, create it and all these other things. It's in the, it's in the works. MashaAllah. To kind of symbolize that friendship. Now, they got a lot of flack they as Christians got mm. a lot of fact from other Christians for why are you guys being cozy with the Muslims um, and even them it took you know, I don't want to say it took them a while but they have to open up to these ideas there are churches so now alhamdulillah because of the inroads that we've made with like Heart Song I for example because I'm in charge of Dawah and Outreach mm. um, next week next Sunday I'm going to a church to their adult Sunday school and to talk to them about Islam and I have another church that I'm going to talk to and another we're going around Initially, some of the people at the church are like, wait a second, who's coming? An imam coming to the church? Yeah. Why is this, you know? 
there's a lot of ignorance. There's a lot of, and some people are very simply intolerant. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I'll blame some of it on ignorance. Some of it is Islamophobia. Some of it is hatred. So yeah. that masjid, so to answer your question, uh -huh. that masjid down in Mississippi, um, it's the city council that actually blocked it. Right. Um, initially, they were like a mosque here. Well, then you open and you look at the Facebook comments. They were terrible. It was, it was, you know, there's just ignorance across the board. Um, yeah, and, well, it's partly understandable, right? Because if you're a faithful Christian and you're getting your news from from Fox News, and Fox News is telling you that the Muslims, you know, they're here to do some damage. You know, they're here to uproot your faith as Christians. They're here to implement Sharia law, and you know, overthrow the White House, and take over. And they're, you know, they're here. They're trying to make inroads into your community to take over. They want to do you harm. And if they actually believe that, then it's understandable that that person is going to be next door. Of course, they'd be scared. So what do you think is the solution to these folks that sit on city council that are blocking Masajid from being established that are, you know, it's probably not a, 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 a great place to be when you're looking to be Muslim in the South in a very, you know, particularly rural area and people really don't like you, they're not familiar with you. What do you think the solution is for, for, for that kind of situation? Yeah, I mean, alhamdulillah, we didn't have that problem here in Tennessee. Mm. You know, Memphis, the city, obviously. In fact, Memphis City is the first city in America to have a na uh, recognized Muslim month. Mm. So the month of March is Muslim month in, in Memphis. So the city gives us access to a lot of resources to promote Islam and Muslims. And this happened wow. after 9-11. No other city has this that I'm aware of. Because wow. you know they have like, um, you know, this month, you know, African American Heritage Month, mm -hmm. whatever, you know, this, this month, that month. We have Muslim month in Memphis. So they've been very accommodating. Con uh, no, but that's because Memphis is an established city. Cities tend tend to be more educated, more tolerant, more open-minded. <laughs> so as you. you get into the rural areas and the outskirts and stuff, and we go down to Mississippi, because Memphis is right on the border with Mississippi. Yeah. Um, you so, you tend to have that. Now here's yeah. the thing. The problem is, I'll I'll add this. Hmm. I don't blame it all on ignorance. If a person is just getting whatever they get from Fox News, and they believe the things that they're hearing there. Like what you just said, it sounds completely absurd. If you said that about any group, I'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. There's what, what is this? People are too gullible. Um, if they believe that most people, I think want an excuse to not deal with an other An other mm. represents an unknown and they don't, they don't like uncertainty in their life. For sure. Exactly. You know what I mean? So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lazy response. If they just thought about it for two seconds, whatever they're being fed, two seconds, they would realize, wait a second, that's absurd. But they don't. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who actually encourages us in the Quran to do that. You know, say, indeed, I only remind you, I'm just asking you to do one thing. To you, for you to stand, you know, solitary or, or in, in groups of two. And to think. Most people won't even think momentarily. Your friend, your companion, meaning the Prophet Sallallahu does not have, he's not crazy. <laughs> yeah. He's not. If you just think about it for just a second, just a moment, most people aren't willing to even think and just to ponder, wait a second, this doesn't add up. This doesn't make any sense what the person is saying. Most people just blindly follow whatever they want to follow. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's getting worse. Like uh, statistics show that, you know, more and more people have a negative view. The majority of Americans, I think it's 53% have a negative view towards the salmon Muslims. And, you know, Donald Trump didn't help. You know, it's gotten worse uh, since 9-11. It hasn't gotten better, you know, with more distance between 
you know, 9-11, and now it's, it's gotten actually worse for Muslims in America. So the situation is, is actually deteriorating for us. That's what the statistics show, that people actually have a, more and more people have a negative view, uh, Americans have a negative view towards the Simon Muslims. So uh, I think that uh, there are a lot of concerns, not only with us being, you know, different, but there's a, a concern about uh, uh, the running for office part, you know, that Muslims are now for the first time in office. And they're not big fans of uh, the two Muslim congresswomen, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. Um, first of all, what, what's your perspective on, on uh, Muslims in office? If, if this is something we want to go into, I don't know. Yeah, no, no, no. I was going to I was gonna talk about like the whole perception of Islam and Muslims. Is it getting worse for Muslims in America? Um, I don't think that's the case. Why is that? I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. I think things have gotten better. I mean, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, things were terrible. People were being harassed by the government. They were harassed by... I mean, the harassment is still kind of happening, but mm -hmm. I'm saying, like, you know what I mean? Um, I think it was much worse. I think Muslims now um, are uh, being more and more accepted. Um, it's not as, as bad. As, I'm not saying that it's good right now. Obviously, we have a lot of... <laughs> there's a lot that needs to be done, for sure. Yeah. Um, I don't think um, it's as bad as it was in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Um, I also want to say, like, the statistics also show interesting things. Um, that if the person knows one Muslim, right, just mm. as a friend or an acquaintance or a coworker, their image of Islam completely changes. Oh, for sure. The overwhelming majority of people that have a positive view of Islam, it's because they know a Muslim. And so sure. one of the things that we were trying to do was to get people to go out there and and be th th what this means. I mean, the onus, always, always, Yanni, if there's something that I can do, I need to be doing it. Mm -hmm. And so if what will fix the situation is by me being a proud Muslim, you know what I mean? I'm out there. My coworkers know who I am. My neighbors know who I am, et cetera. That's going to change perspectives big time. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? We can we can talk about all these different ways that we want people to be more tolerant. But at the end of the day, people are people. And if I know a person who is of this out group, if I identify with an in group and then there's an out group over here. Um, and if I know a person from the out group and I'm like, wait a second, I'm seeing on the news that all these Muslims are terrorists. At least that's the claim. But I have Muhammad here that I work with and he's such a good guy. Like he's a stand up guy. He's right. one of the best employees that we have in our company. And he's like this and this and this. Then that'll cause me to kind of doubt what I'm what I'm seeing. And then I realize, wait a second, what, exactly. what's, what I'm being told is not correct. But if Muhammad changes his name to Mo <laughs> and never talks about Islam, he doesn't even identify as a Muslim, right? Right. I'm not gonna have that positive image of Islam. You understand For what sure. I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. So a lot of times we think that what I do to help me personally, um, by just kind of blending in and being under the radar. I think that it's helping me, but actually in the long term, it's not. It's not neither helping me nor is it helping my community. Yeah. So what, what, what would you say is the goal of Muslims in America? I think uh, someone asked this question to, to Sheikh Yasser Qadi in a recent lecture. I think he was doing it at a, in the, the, the university that opened in Pakistan. He said it preservation and propagation, like terms of preserving your faith and then just sharing your faith. And he also said one of the best ways to share your faith is to just be just be an upstanding citizen yeah. and then also be Muslim. Like you don't have to go door to door, Jehovah's Witness type sharing Islam, but just to be an upstanding citizen and to also keep your faith. So what what, what in your mind is, is the best way or the, the goal, really? Yeah, I mean, I haven't I haven't heard his talk. I haven't heard that talk, but um, mm. 
I, I think you know the points are very valid. You know what I mean? We, we need to preserve the faith. And honestly, some of us are doing a better job than others in preserving the faith of ourselves and our, our you know children and everybody else. Um, propagation, same thing. There is an onus of da'wah, and da'wah, and we, like you said, it's not just it's not just going door to door and talking to people or apologetics or refutations mm-hmm. or you know what I mean responses or YouTube, you know whatever, Twitter. This is you being an upstanding citizen, you being a good Muslim, etc. But also not being afraid of identifying. You know the verse, the verse that um, you know that in, in Surah Fussilat, where Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, Who is better in speech than the one who calls to Allah? So he's calling to Allah, and he does righteous deeds. So he's proving, he's backing it up with actions. So he's not just giving da'wah, but his actions are also giving da'wah. But then the last one I think is the least understood. And he said, I am a Muslim. Hmm. Part of your da'wah is merely identifying as whatever it is that you want people to understand. You being a good Muslim is actually a form of da'wah according to this verse. So this is not this is not something that is just saying out of nowhere. There's a there's a backing for it. Um, and a lot of people diminish this. You know how many I mean, I'm sure you know this. Most Muslim students in, in a public high school do not identify as a Muslim. Meaning they're not public with the fact that they're Muslim or right. that they're any different. Or they'll go by a nickname or they'll do whatever. And uh, it's tough because they're like a lone fish in a huge ocean full of <laughs> yeah, yeah. sharks and they don't want to, you know what I mean, uh, be different or stand out and that pressure on them and stuff like this. Um, but as you grow older, as you grow up, you have to, you have to. There's that one point you have to embrace who it is you are, that question of identity, who I am. I shouldn't be afraid of it. I shouldn't be afraid of judgment. I shouldn't... And, and and having our parents and our Islamic communities, you know, like our masajid, instill in us a sense of pride to our identity. Like, don't be afraid to say that you're Muslim. It's not a problem. I you can you. be Muslim and American. Unfortunately, we, we, because of the way that we, we, I think, as parents understand it, it gets passed on to the kids unintentionally, which is that being fully American and being fully Muslim are at odds. Mm-hmm. When in fact, they're not at odds. You know, and a person, well, 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 no, there's American things that are antithetical to Islam. Like what? Like drinking? Who said that drinking is an American exactly. institution? Yeah. Who said that going to a club is an American institution? It's not. Yeah. That's not what defines America. <laughs> right, right. You know, what defines America is very different. If you read the Constitution, there's nothing in there. You know what I mean? Well, it's, it's the ideals of liberty that define America. It's live sure. and let live. Sure. That, that's what's enshrined sure. in the Constitution. Uh-huh. So why is that antithetical? Well, I didn't say it was. Yeah, yeah, no, no, but I'm saying, like, a lot of these parents are thinking, yeah. like, oh, I have to, if, if, you know, oh, you're so Americanized. I'm like, what does that even mean, dude? Yeah, yeah, for so, sure. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so it seems like uh, y- your approach is to take things public, to be open and honest about who you are, to identify as Muslim in the public sphere. Um, a question, though, for you, and uh, if this is something we want to want to discuss. Part of that, though, um, is to to take a stand on political issues like right now in the media the something big that's happening right now is that there um roe v wade is possibly going to be overturned because the number of justices in the supreme court it, it's it's been taken up to the supreme court the case and the number of justices are now mostly conservative and so people are of the are of the opinion that roe v wade which gives you know women the right to, to abortion could possibly be overturned and um the clergy with all due respect haven't spoken on this uh, Muslims have taken it upon Muslims in the activist uh, uh, area have taken it upon themselves to side with uh, the the liberal position, which is uh, we should be fighting to keep Roe v. Wade. W- what do you think from an Islamic paradigm 
should be the stance of Muslims in America. <laughs> um, so I have a very unpopular opinion. I hear you. Right? I'm for it. Go um, ahead. We're not talking about the root issue. Why is abortion even an issue? What do you mean? Yeah, see, that's, that's my unpopular opinion. Uh -huh. Most people are confu as confused as you are when I bring this up. Like, why is abortion even an issue? I, I don't understand. So are you, are you saying why are we having a discussion about it in government? Why is it an issue? Why is abortion such a big issue? Why wasn't it historically an issue? Well, I think for the first time when Roe v. Wade was passed, there's legislation that guarantees the right to abortion, like if a woman wants to do it. Yeah, yeah I understand. But what I'm saying is, why is abortion now an issue? Who, look, so for oh, well, people are not as religious. They don't care. They don't believe in the sanctity of that as a thing, I think. Okay. So, so. It, they're, 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 it's because of promiscuity. Oh, I hear what you're saying. You understand I what I'm saying? saying? Yeah. Yeah, and it, 95 what is it? I think I read this. To say, I think it's well over 95% of all abortions are by women who are not married. Mm -hmm. Right? Meaning they're having children out of wedlock. Like having children out of wedlock. Is this an Islamic stance? No. It's not. Is it a Christian stance? Of course not. Are Christians talking about it? Having children out of wedlock. Or even a relationship out of wedlock. Just to be frank. I you know yeah. we're talking about our Islamic principles. I'm sure they I'm are. Not trying a to small, be a hard, I'm yeah. not trying to be, you know what I mean, difficult or anything like no, this. No, I hear I'm you. Not. Yeah, I'm sure at some but level they given are not up, as much. They've given up on that battle. Yeah. They're not even talking about it. You know, right now in church, they'll give you dating advice. When Aslan, Aslan, is dating allowed within Christendom. What's that word you use there? What's that? To begin with. Okay. Aslan. I'm just translating yeah. for the audience. Yeah, yeah. Here. To begin with, by default, is mm -hmm. that allowed for you to have a relationship with a woman without being married to her? Is that allowed? In a Christian... Right, it's not. It's not allowed. Yeah. But they've given up on that idea. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, here's the thing. If we were in an ideal situation where people would only have relationships with people that they intended to marry. Because I think marriage is a beautiful thing. I think we've destroyed marriage by opening up these floodgates. People say, oh, I'm, I have a boyfriend or girlfriend. It's marriage under a different name. Because they expect them to be exclusive without actually committing. It's a fear of commitment. We're destroying relationships. People experience heartbreak multiple times in their life. They can't settle down. When they want to settle down, they're like antsy. They're anxious. They don't know how to settle down. It's a mess, mm -hmm. right? And it starts initially stems from people not wanting to commit. That fear of commitment and the fear of marriage and the fear of all these things. They don't want to make it official. I want to be able to wake up one day and just tell, text her and be like, I don't want you anymore. I don't feel like you. Mm. I want to move on to somebody else or something new. Right? Yeah. So with all of that said, since the vast majority, vast majority, 95% or whatever it was, um, of all abortions are, are by women who are not in, you know, either not in a committed relationship or obviously all of them are unmarried. Right? If we solve that problem, would we have a problem with abortion? Abortion would be nothing. It wouldn't even be that big of a deal. Does that make sense? You. Yeah. It's because we've destroyed. And I don't, I don't, th I, when I say we've destroyed, I don't think it was necessarily intentional. Like, I'm not trying to stir up. There's a conspiracy no, against you. whatever. It's just the way things have gone. And we've unfortunately kind of stayed in those steps of shaitan, destroying the very foundation of, of making up society, which is a family unit. Mm -hmm. We don't, we have very few families left anymore. You know what I mean? At, at the first, this is for the first time, I think, in American history that more children are born out of wedlock than in wedlock 
Meaning yeah. they don't have an established family. Imagine those are kids that are going to grow up without knowing their dads or even some of them not even knowing their mothers, not even knowing, you know, not having an extended family to turn to. And when they, t when they say it takes a village to raise kids, I know this. People who are families, you know why parents are so stressed out these days? Hmm. Because they have no extended family to help out with the kids. Traditionally, historically, we had extended families, aunts, uncles, cousins, neighbors. All of these people were pitching in to raise those kids together. It is so tough to raise a kid. You know, just one child, to raise him. Imagine raising him by yourself, let alone with two parents. Two parents struggle, right? Because it's almost impossible. Historically, this never happened. Historically, in the human race, we never had that where it was just two parents raising a kid. It was always the entire village. And now we're not even having two parents. It's one parent. I, wallah, I can't imagine. Wallah, the yeah. sisters that are out there or some of the fathers that are out there that are raising a kid on their own, may Allah bless them, may Allah help them and protect them. It's tough. And I'm not saying it's their fault. This is just the society that we're born into. If we can help the situation, we should. And this is why I think communities have a responsibility to help these types of things, right? So going back, abortion is just one of the consequences of the decay at the core, which is we're not actually emphasizing good families. If I we take you. care, if people actually committed to a relationship, there's no they don't have abortions. Typically, they don't. And even in those cases, they have them under medical circumstances. And aslan shari, you know, from a sharia point of view, that's allowed. If there's a medical necessity, if there's an emergency, something's going to happen, you can go ahead. This is why the Islamic stance on this is very nuanced. But what I'm saying, we wouldn't even be having this discussion if there was an emphasis on building a family, not being promiscuous before marriage. Many I, people, I they can't wait to marriage. Like, oh, marriage is so difficult these days. And for, even as a Muslim community, mm -hmm. we've made marriage so hard. The halal is so hard and the haram is so easy. It's so easy these days. You want to do anything haram, you can do it. <laughs> right, right. So easily. You want to do something halal, it's going to take you a long time. Yeah. So just for clarity, because that's another fun topic, but just for clarity on, on abortion, the Islamic position is that you said it's, it's allowed under medical necessity. What does that entail? I mean, there's resources. I don't want to get into, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, the technical you know, details of um, what does it entail? Because that's a medical discussion. Mm -hmm. Like, um, is, are you saying harm to the mother? Is harm to the mother, yeah. Okay. But the normal position is that it's not allowed. No. N no as in yes? Or no as in? No, I mean, it's not, a, it's not allowed. It's not allowed, okay. Unless there are certain circumstances. I hear you. Does okay. Does Yaqeen, you know, Yaqeen Institute had a very good um, yeah. article about it, infographic. Um, yeah. People can check that out. Okay. Y-A-Q-E-E-N, just for clarity. Yeah, Y-A-Q-E-E-N, Yaqeen Institute. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So when something like this is being debated, like this is center stage all over the nation right now, this is, this is what's being talked about. Should Muslims just stay quiet, just sit to the sidelines and let you guys duke it out? Like... What should we do in this situation when we're talking about politics and things that will be enforced and enshrined in law? Well, what do so you just because people are talking about something doesn't mean that we need to be talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. I'm a believer. You know, I'm a fan of Muhammad Ali, the boxer. Mm -hmm. May Allah have mercy upon him. I mean, you know, um, he was a person who always set the agenda. People would come like, hey, I want to talk about this. And he's like, no, I'm going to talk about this. <laughs> he has his agenda. He knows what he's going to talk about. We as Muslims, we don't have to get caught up in 
discussions. Now, I'm not saying that it's irrelevant to us. It is, actually. It, it is very well relevant. But we should go to people who know what they're talking about, experts. I'm not an expert in abortion or in women's rights um, or in what would be, you know what I mean, the, the consequences of siding with one side or the other. I know that almost every issue is very nuanced and there needs to be a discussion on this. And like I said, I, from my, I gave you my perspective on the whole thing. I think we're yeah. missing the point. This whole discussion would not even be a discussion if we actually went back to our original roots as Muslims and Christians and Jews, not just, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not talking just about Muslims, but the whole idea of like not emphasizing the family um, has no, caused I, I us to that. get into this. Does that make sense? Yeah, you yeah, it, what I'm saying? it does. But I'm wondering if we should be interested in trying to affect change at the political level. Especially if you believe it, if it's, a, if it's a worthy cause, you believe that it's a worthy cause. I can't tell you what is a worthy cause. People have different inclinations to different causes because of their personality, and that's great. We actually need that diversity in thought. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't just look up to one sheikh or, or another sheikh to see what's important to talk about and what's not. Um, because you might have a, an inclination. Imam, you know, Imam Malik was approached by a guy about this, mm. where the guy told Imam Malik, he's like, why aren't you participating in the jihad with us? You know, you're not fighting, you're not doing, you know, you're just hadith, hadith, knowledge. He said, Zakallah khair. Imam Malik wrote him back a letter. He said, you know, by Allah, Allah has يعني, قسم الأعمال كما قسم الأرزاق. He has distributed our a'mal, our deeds, just as he distributed wealth, meaning some people are wealthy, some people are poor. And the deeds, the different deeds that we find ourselves naturally inclined to are also distributed, meaning ربما فتح لفلان في الصلاة ما لم يفتح لغيره. Some person, salah, يعني, as a deed, He's able to perfect it and he loves it in a way that other person might not have. And some person might excel in fasting. He loves to fast. He fasts all the time. That's really, you know, something that he excels in. So he says, you know, he names uh, these categories just as examples, but it could be in anything. And he says, this is why he says, I do not believe that what I am in is better than what you are in. I just believe that people have different inclinations, different areas in which they excel. That's very good. So if somebody's an activist and they believe genuinely, they believe and they have proof that if I champion this side over that side, it's something that I should be doing. Go ahead, do it. I'm not going to stop you. As long as you're still within your Islamic principles, you know, you're still doing, you know, what's, what's necessary, etc., but this is why you'll have Muslims that are inclined towards activism in certain areas over others. And this is why you'll also have um, Muslim scholars that are experts in some areas over others. A lot of times we go to the sheikh and we expect him to be an expert in everything. <laughs> sheikh, right. which one, what, what should I do? I don't know. This is not my area of expertise. Right. So, so the reason, what, what I'm trying to get at is the fact that there are Muslim activists that are, you know, proponents of certain, you know, uh, things at the political level. What I was thinking is that Muslim clergy would be their coaches and referees to help guide them towards what they're supposed to be doing that is permissible and not permissible. Like you mentioned that they should be following Islamic principles. Shouldn't there be a guide to show them what those principles are? Because a lot of things are being thrown out there. I'm not going to mention names. I don't want to start any, you know, fitna or whatever. But, you know, th there are some people that will say, well, my God is a she. Well, that's like, whoa. Like no one has ever said that in uh, the Islamic scholarship tradition, you know, at all. So maybe maybe some hand holding is needed. What, what what do you think? Yeah, I mean every every per I mean I can say whatever I want to. It doesn't mean that they're gonna listen. Um, 
Right, but you know, legitimacy comes from the clergy in Islam. That's that's kind of where we look towards as guide. Sure, and I'm sure. I I, I mean I don't know to the specifics of specific individuals. I'm sure mm-hmm. they have clergy that they refer to. I'm sure they have people that talk to them, and they talk to people. I'm, I know this for a fact. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like they've probably consult with people. People have reached out to them. You know what I mean? Behind doors, we don't see it publicly. That's mm-hmm. not a problem. People should do this. At-tanasur. You know, sharing good advice is something that's needed. So if somebody can advise them, it doesn't have to be public. And a lot of times it might be actually in private. Then that's actually a very good thing. Um, okay. So utilizing these back channels a lot of times is better than creating a scene um, in which there might be more backlash than is needed. Um, however, at the same time, um, like you said, we do have resources that we go to. In these modern issues, Islam, like a lot of times I'll have a student who asks, hey, what does Islam say about one, two, and three? I'm like... Who's this Islam? What's his last name? Who are we talking about? Yeah. Like, no, I'm talking about the religion. I'm like, no, the religion doesn't say anything. It's the scholars who interpret our, you know, the raw sources that we have. Right. But that's why you'll have multiple opinions on many issues. You know, it's only on a few. Yani, obviously, we have yani, things in which most, if not all, Muslim scholars agree. But in a lot of these issues, it's only an issue because there is a disagreement on the interpretation. And so... Um, she might be or he might be going to a Muslim scholar who's legitimizing what they're saying. We don't know that. You know what I mean? So yeah. if I differ, it's not necessarily that I differ with the activist. It also could be that I differ Aslan with the scholar who's actually holding that opinion as well. And there are scholars who hold really, <laughs> hmm. you know what I mean, far out their opinions that I might not agree with, but that doesn't delegitimize them necessarily in their scholarship. That's why in Islam it is a scholarship. We can refute, we can respond, we can have a debate, we can have a friendly conversation, all these things. I, I prefer, my methodology, I prefer having a friendly conversation. I used to give khutbahs back when I was in Salt Lake City. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I remember when I first like started as the imam, this brother would, would send me emails after every khutbah. You should repent from this methodology. This is like a, it was like, a, <laughs> he's like, a, what you're saying is, you know, ikhwani, you know, Ikhwan Muslimin, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, brother, Zakallah khair. I said, first off, I'm not a member of the Ikhwan Muslimin. I was never a member of the Ikhwan Muslimin. Yeah. I don't know where you're getting this from, but I would like to discuss it more with you over a cup of tea. Would you mind coming over to my house? You know what I mean? We can discuss this. I was being, I knew the brother, you know what I mean? He's a nice guy. He's just concerned. I understand his concern. He'd email me, no, there's no need. You should just repent. Here's the here's the pages, whatever. I'm like, brother, I want to understand where this is coming from. Yeah. I haven't said anything. And if you want, I can I can come to your house. Or if you want, we can even meet at a third place. La. Nothing. A few weeks later, I get the same email. Brother, you know, this Ikhwani methodology. I'm like, what Ikhwani methodology? I didn't say any, literally nothing. I'm like, what is it exactly? He's just saying the methodology. So I, I emailed him again. Yeah, and I was like, look, let's, I want to, you have to come and meet with me. You can't just throw out these accusations. I want to see where this is. But I'm not going to hide. I don't want you to hide behind your keyboard. You know? Right. This is something that we, and, and what I'm telling you, this story happened 15 years ago. That's why it's over email, right? Mm. Nowadays, it would have been over Twitter or something. Or YouTube. But, they'll make a YouTube, YouTube. video refuting you. Whatever refutation it is. Of, uh, but it's not even refutation. Yeah, he's, he's conjuring things up from nowhere. Yeah. I'm, I'm, not, yani, I'm not against the ikhwan or, or for the ikhwan. This has nothing to do with them you know, as a group. I'm just saying in general, he's, <laughs> where are you getting this from? So I, I, um, I told him, brother, Zakallah yani, khair, give me specifics. But I want you to, I want to sit down with you and talk to you, have a conversation. Most people do not want to have a conversation. Why? 
why is he afraid of the conversation? Because he might be proven wrong. He might have all realized, wait, I conjured this from my own imagination. Or I want to find fault in you. Why do you want to find fault in me, Akhi? And there are people, unfortunately, I'm not saying about this brother, Allahu Alam, his intention. But there are people who, their whole goal is for some reason to find fault in every... And a person uploads a lecture, he's not listening to, to benefit. He's listening to refute. He's listening to find fault. Where are the faults in this person? Yahi, why? Why are you doing this? If, you, if your intention is to correct the faults, email him directly. Yahi, message exactly. him. Talk to him. But um, we've made it a business to, to do this refutation and do all these things. And this is why there are people who do work within the back channels if they hear something wrong, etc., etc. And I believe that this is one of the best ways. Because if you're sincere and they're sincere, they'll accept it. I've yet to find somebody who'll be like, oh, what you're saying. If they get defensive, I understand. They might identify, you know, they might have taken it part of their identity, who they are. Um, but generally speaking, I think we've lost the art of giving good advice. Aslan, it's part of our religion. We need to learn this. We need to learn how to actually talk to people, approach them. Hey, you know, this, this, I don't agree with this. You know what I mean? And here's why. And I just want something good for you. It's in private. It's whatever. And if they tell you, hey, I want to discuss it over a cup of coffee, go. Don't be afraid. You might have made assumptions that weren't there. Wallah, almost every time I made an assumption. An assum and when I was wrong, I realized, man, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, you tend to try to refute this and, and debunk this. And then it turns out you un you misunderstood the whole thing. You know what I mean? And then it's a humbling experience. And then you learn. And you learn not to make those assumptions to begin with. So I hear you. We have to do that. I think the same thing, Yanni, with a lot of the, the especially public discourse. Unfortunately, a lot of the public discourse is terrible. And people go straight to a person's intentions. They go straight to where they're coming from. And we don't know that. Right. And, and, and I think the issue is that the, the person in the public eye is the one that is seen as the source of truth in terms of Islam. So the non-Muslims, when they look to understand a position of somebody on something, uh, Muslims on something, they look at the person that's in the public. And, you know, n not only on, on in terms of uh, the congresswoman, but also th a recent example is when when some, you know, fringe understanding was brought to the forefront when a person came out and said that saying Merry Christmas is worse than murder. Some absolutely ridiculous that he, that he brought from a book that Ibn Qayyim wrote. He, first of all, he doesn't even mention the fact that this is something that is part of ijtihad. So saying, and, and you can, if you could correct me if I'm wrong here, but saying something is halal or haram on ijtihad, which is forming your own opinion, which doesn't have a direct explicit evidence from the text, can't be one of those because halal bayin, haram is bayin. So if, 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 if the Quran says that the halal is clear and the haram is clear, but there's multiple opinions on it, well, clearly it's not clear. So it can't be halal or haram. It's something in between. Right? Not necessarily. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, and in this, this issue of what, you know, because it's, but it doesn't mean it's mushtabihat for somebody, but it's clear for someone else. Right. But Does that make sense? Yes, but it, there's, so there's multiple opinions on something. How can it no, be? No, but in saying, hold yeah. on, hold on. Yeah. In this issue of saying Merry Christmas, are there multiple opinions? Yes. I'm pretty sure. In, in terms of what? That it's permissible or impermissible? Yes. Or is it at the, how impermissible is it? Uh, that's a good question. You understand, you understand uh -huh. what I'm saying? Because I don't think, I don't think there's any reputable Muslim scholar who says it's permissible, hick, blanketly to say Merry Christmas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, so this is where I'm getting this from. The, there's there's a, an understanding 
that there's multiple positions on it, makruh, mubah, you know, is it dislike, sure. not dislike, whatnot. That that comes from uh, uh, the uh, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya about this position where he collects from different people, like Imam al-Shalta be on this, and Imam And But what I'm trying to get at here is, is that a person comes out and says that this is worse than murder. And then in the public eye, you know, some Muslims, they, they'd rather not be in the public, I understand. But the people that are in the public are the folks that, you know, YQ refers to as the neophytes. You know, the people that are, uh, you know, new in their, you know, they're my age and then they're out uploading videos to YouTube about halal and haram, which is very strange yeah. because, you know, and, and they're using, you know, something that is absolutely minority opinion. You know, like one person has this opinion that it's worse than murder. No one else has said that ever. And they put it and they apply it as a standard across the board. They go, guys, this is this is what Islam says. And then the, the people that want to make us look bad, you know, right-wing extremists, pick up on that and they publicize it. And then we're we're being affected negatively and, and, and whatnot. So what I'm asking is, is how to combat that and, you know, how to stop that, how to stop the, this, this, the attacks you we know, need we need better representatives of islam okay for sure exactly and so and so what i'm asking like is that that young youtuber who's yeah. uploading something like that we need to highlight the fact that he's a nobody right right <laughs> or he doesn't speak on behalf of islam so who speaks on behalf of muslims the clergy right sure uh, what do the clergy say and that's what we go to and we have to highlight that i think a lot of times with people we have to highlight that like this guy's a nobody he can say whatever he wants doesn't matter it doesn't mean that it's correct or even true yes aslan aslan to begin with, I, I'm using this word again, mm -hmm. right? To begin with, right? The default is, is there anybody who speaks on behalf of Islam? There isn't, which is why uh, it's it's a collection, right? It's a group of people that understand Islam. The scholars, the Very inheritors good. of the prophets. So the more knowledge you have, the more scholar you are, the more reputation you have, the more whatever. Yeah. And so we highlight that very clearly with this guy. But today, today Muslims in America don't look towards the shiyukh and the imams for... So that's for, a problem we have yes, to resolve. And that this is this is one of the reasons why I'm coming to you and asking you directly about Roe v. Wade to bring the clergy back to the public sphere rather than the Muslim activists or the Muslim politicians that are telling everyone, we represent Islam, this is what Islam says. Sure. But, but that's already been done. It's not just me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there's 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 people that have spoken about this. They're very clear. Like I said, there's scholarly work that's been done by people much more qualified than I. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, with the issue of, you know, Merry Christmas being an issue, um, how how severe is it? You know, where is Ibn al-Qayyim coming from? I love Ibn al-Qayyim, you know what I mean? But why would he say something like this? If you go back and read his book, you'll see exactly why he says, you know what I mean, whatever he says. Does that apply to 2021 exactly. in America? Exactly. It doesn't, you know what I mean? He's in a completely different context, etc. Um now, does that mean that it's permissible for a Muslim? Aslan, this is such a tertiary issue. It's such a side issue that I think we get lost in these debates and we lose focus on the, the bigger issue that we face as a Muslim ummah, especially living in the West. You know what I mean? It has nothing to do with whether you say Merry Christmas or not. Wallahi, it doesn't. Yeah, it's, such a, it's just a small issue. What's bigger is your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, your, your kid's relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, your, your future, your iman. Are you able to preserve your iman? Okay. What do you think is going to happen 30 years from now? What are the masajid going to look like? MIC right now is very beautiful and very nice and it's brand new. 30 years from now, how is it going to look? What are the people after us going to be doing? Are we even going to have children? Yeah, and think about this. 
many of the same people that fight for you know to be on the board of a masjid or to be a leader what are their own kids doing are their kids even gonna be interested in the masjid or even be going wallah i'm fearful i'm so fearful for you know our community you know what i mean 20 years from now 30 years from now that we we don't go the route of many other communities around the world that we're living in predominantly non-Muslim lands, meaning non-Muslim by, you know, there's not a lot of Muslims around them. And what happens to them? You know what I mean? Yes, they built Masajid. This happened in South America. They built Masajid. And then what happened to the Masajid? Almost virtually none of them are left. Mm-hmm. Even from, you know what I mean, the book that you guys are reading in the in the Southern America class, mm-hmm. where he talks about that second wave of Muslim immigration, you know, between the 1880s and up until the 1920s. For those 40 years, people were coming. And some Masajid were built is there a single one left? Not a single one is left. One of the scariest statistics that happened was that every single one of those men who married a Christian or a non-Muslim woman, right? Mm-hmm. How many of their children retain the faith? How many of their grandchildren retain the faith? You know what the percentage is? Hmm. It's zero. Wow. They did research. They tried to track down. They literally tracked down thousands of people. Most of them had no clue that they had a Muslim ancestor. The ones who did assumed that, oh yeah, I have a, a Muslim ancestor the same way that they would assume that they have an Irish ancestor. Meaning it's an ethnicity, not a faith. Mm. They're like, yeah, I think uh, we have a great-grandfather who was Muslim. And he yeah. just says it, you know, he doesn't even know what being Muslim means. He just thinks that, yeah, it's some exotic, you know, thing out there. Not knowing that it's actually a part of the faith. You have people, there are descendants of this, walking among us where they had a forefather who was Muslim, and then the faith was completely lost. Mm. That's what I'm worried about. Now, his faith was, faith was lost, not because he was saying Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it's because they were actually celebrating Christmas. They went full out, and they ignored the Eid. They didn't even know where Ramadan was. They weren't praying five times a day. Yeah. So, of course, this is going to happen. You know what I mean? So, we have to instill in our children a sense of identity, a sense of Islam, being proud of it. You know what I mean? Understanding what it means. And if you feel that you're you're not qualified as a parent, yeah, the masjid is here. Bring them to the masjid. I've talked to parents, um, like, oh, my daughter went to college. She took her hijab off. Mm. Okay, why did she take it off? She doesn't believe in it. But I thought she already she always believed in it. I'm like, did you ever talk to her about hijab? No, I just told her she has to start wearing it when she was like 13. So the late girl was forced. At 13, she's not going to stand up to her mom. But as soon as she went out on college, she's living in the dorm by herself. She took it off. And she's not even practicing any Islam. She has a boyfriend and everything. Like completely خلاص, divorced from the religion. Completely. Wow. And so I asked the lady, يعني, this is just an example. I asked the lady, why يعني, Why didn't you bring her to the masjid? Oh, I was always busy. You know, and there weren't that many programs in the masjid. Or there I'm like, but you know, you can bring her. If you can't teach, bring them to somebody who can. There's resources out there. Just go and look for them. Of course, that girl, yani, khalas, she's gone. Yani, you, you talk to her, I've talked to the, and it's like, what the heck? You're starting from the bare basics. There's not even a belief in God, barely. And it's a disaster. And a lot of these parents are thinking that they want to raise their kids the same way that they were raised, where nobody sat them down to talk to them. Nobody cared about them. Nobody showed them love, you know what I mean? Because they were raised in that village back home, where it did take a village to raise them. But now when they come to America, there is no village. You have to create your own. So we yeah. can either create it together in a nice community, in a, in a masjid, um, you know, putting our kids in a, in a school, having friends and stuff like that that are Muslim, making sure they're in that, you know what I mean, good environment, raising them properly. But also they understand, hey, there's a bigger world out there where there are a lot of people that are not Muslim. 
You know what I mean? My kids, you ask them, you know what I mean? Like, oh, these Christians. My daughter's like, Baba, all these Christians, like, why don't they know about Islam? Like, well, it's because we need to tell them. You know what I mean? Like, don't they know, you know, God doesn't have a son? Don't they know that Jesus is not, you know, they're like, they're mm. concerned. You can tell the, the worry. But it's because we've instilled in them these issues. You know, they know what separates them from the other. And they know why Islam makes sense. They know why Islam is logical. They know why people are converting to Islam and not the other way around, typically speaking. And it's the people that are leaving. It's the people that didn't even know what they had to begin with. The people that are leaving Islam, quote unquote, these young people, they didn't even know what they had to begin with, many of them. Or many of them just want an excuse to live the promiscuous life that they thought that they were yearning for. Or in fact, they'll realize very soon thereafter, like, wait a second, this isn't all that I was hyped up to be. I'm not happy. Because they're looking for happiness, ultimately. And then they find out that that happiness that they were chasing is fleeting, it's temporary, and it leaves them with more regret than us, on, and it weighs heavier on their heart than us on the happiness that they had from the get-go. And eventually they'll find their way back if they had those good roots. And inshallah ta'ala, I hope that everyone who is lost does come back to their roots and does come back to Islam. I mean, so you say priority number one for you is very much preserving the faith tradition. Yeah. And especially as as Muslims, it's like, it's like why, why Q said preservation and propagation, and I think it has to start. It starts with preservation. <laughs> I hear you. So it, you don't seem like the 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 typical uh, sheikh, if if I may say. Uh, the reason why is because I see that you you know you're wearing a suit. Uh, you're not wearing the thobe and the the cap on your head. Is there a reason for this? I like my hair. Okay. <laughs> no, no. The, what is a shit? So I remember when I first came to Memphis, I gave a. I was at the other masjid, and I was giving the khutbah. And like two weeks in, three weeks in, a bunch of brothers come up to me like, Sheikh, why don't you wear Sheikh clothes? I'm like, so what is what is that? What is a Sheikh? I'm asking him. I want him. I want to hear it from him. I know what he's asking, right? Yeah. But I'm I'm just trying to get it out of him, for him to refute himself. Okay. What is what? What are Sheikh clothes? Right. It's like, you know, thobe, you know, dishdasha. Like, where does it say that? Where, where's the hadith or the ayah that says, Ashaykhu yajibu an yalbis? Right, right. It doesn't say anything like that. In fact, us on the thobe that you're wearing, the Prophet never wore a thobe like that. It was completely different. If you actually look at prophetic clothes, they were very different than what we assume are the prophetic clothes, number one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> number two, this is actually a cultural practice. That same thobe that the Prophet was wearing is the same thobe that Abu Jahl was wearing. Right. It's very cultural. It has nothing to do with, you know, as long as it covers the aura, it's appropriate. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not, um, you know, uh, immodest, et cetera, et cetera. There's guidelines. Yes. But after the outside of that, you'll find, you'll realize, hey, wait a second. What I thought was Islamic or what Sheikh like that. Aslan Ibn Taymiyyah himself was asked um, in his fatawa, you know, by a person who was living in, in a predominantly non-Muslim country, you know, at the time, which is very strange at the time, but mm-hmm. he was. He said, what should I wear? Should I wear the clothes from my back home or should I wear the clothes of the people? He said, as long as it's appropriate, wear the clothes of the people. You don't need to stand out. Yeah. Now, if a person wants to wear a thobe, ahlan wa sahlan, go ahead. I'm not going to be against that. I used to be like very much anti-thobe at one point, but I realized like it does have a, it does have a utility. Like I was with a friend of mine and because he was wearing a thobe, he was the only one who was wearing it. We got approached by a guy. He's like, hey, are you guys Muslim? He wouldn't have known that we were Muslim otherwise. Are you guys Muslim? Yeah. It's like, you know, I've been looking for Muslims, blah, blah, blah. I've always wanted to ask some questions. We sat him down. We were at a restaurant. We sat him down with us. He ate with us. We're answering some of his questions. Later on, he came to the masjid, took his shahada. Mashallah. And it was because of the thob. If he didn't now, obviously, the person, and if Allah, and if he was meant to be guided, he'll be guided, inshallah ta'ala. But sure. 
it does have a utility. I understand that fully, but it's not, <laughs> there's nothing to say that it is Islamic or, or anything like this. And to the contrary, you can wear something. Now, what happens to me is that when I dress like this and I go to a function, they're like, oh, are you the Jewish rabbi? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. So, so how do you understand these, uh, the, like, how do you apply Islam in its modern or American context? Is there, can, can you help me evaluate just to see how it is that you, you take certain issues and you, because if, if, if a person studied Islam in Medina, typically they come back wearing like the dress of Medina. If a person studied Islam in North Africa, they come back dressing like Maliki scholars. And so I feel like there's there's a the, the the component of customs isn't taken into account the customs of a of a region. Sure. So how do you understand applying Islam here? How do you learn that? Yeah, they can wear. I, there's nothing to. They can't. You know. No, I hear that. Yeah. They can wear from North Africa. They can wear like Saudi Arabia. They can wear like whatever they want. You know what I mean? That's not a problem. But but it's it's. I'm thinking from the perspective of you know some guy out of Birmingham, Alabama see someone dressed that looks foreign that looks different he automatically might associate that with something bad because he doesn't understand it it's an other yeah sure so it it isn't very conducive to the uh the you know the i don't know if you're a fan of the the fiqh principle uh, that sheikh mutaimi put out that says that you know the 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 from the goals of the of the islamic law is to uh, attain what is good and complete it and complete it and to remove what is bad mm-hmm. and minimize it Sure. And he, you know, the, the some some shuyukh understand that to to apply today to look at Muslims and how they're living in, in non-Muslim lands, and they 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 basically they apply Islam with a a very the context of ease, and also Imam Shatibi has a this qaidat taysir. Sure. That when he applies law, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. he looks at trying to make it as easy as Always. possible. Yes. Mm-hmm. So how is it that you? That's my philosophy as well. Okay. So is is this kind of your your outlook when you try to understand Islam in America and how it's supposed to be practiced? If we can make things easy on the people, we should. If we can make things easy on the people, we always should. I'm also the believer that yeah, as an imam or whoever, you shouldn't look different from the people that you're leading. Mm-hmm. If I'm in a congregation, 90% are wearing shirt and pants and you know what I mean? Why am I why do I have to look? I don't there's not a uniform for a sheikh. You know what I mean? Right. People would come to the Prophet ﷺ in a gathering. They wouldn't know who's the Prophet. Or when they saw Umar later on, they didn't know who's the leader. <laughs> yeah. He's not dressed inherently different. And I'm not saying that we need to be dressed down. I'm just going to come to to the masjid in a t-shirt and, and shorts and sandals and <laughs> yeah. call it a day. There's an appropriateness. But the same thing, like if you look, I think we have an issue with like, we don't even dress up to the masjid anymore. When we should. It says, خُذُوا زِنَةَكُمْ عِنْدَ كُلِّ masjid." should beautify yourself when you go to the masjid especially on the day of Friday the Prophet had separate clothes for Juma prayer than he did for every every other day um, yeah I, you know what I mean I'll come sometimes I would wear a suit and I'd come to Juma and I'm not even giving him the khutbah I'm just coming to Juma and people would be like oh are you the khutbah today I'm like no like oh why are you dressed up and I'm like it's Friday brother yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're dressed in you know sweatpants and, and, and a t-shirt you know I can tell how important Friday is for you yeah you know that that the sha'ir, the rituals that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordained upon the, uh, us, if we know how great they are, then that is a form of taqwa. And that's why I know that Friday, for example, is a sha'ira, it's a ritual. Mm-hmm. So if I show it its importance, especially to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then that is a form of taqwa, that I know that this is important and I'm and I'm uh, exemplifying that in my actions. That's what I should be doing. 
I hear you. Um, I, I want to dig into another topic, but I don't know if you go have ahead. time. Should we should go we ahead. close yeah, here? Yeah. No, 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 go ahead. Go okay. Ahead. Uh, maybe we can close with this one then. Uh, gender relations. Okay. How do you understand gender relations in Islam, especially in America where everything goes? You know, I, I see that from this, this, this message, there's a little bit of a, you know, not going to use the word progressive here, but forward thinking, you know, <laughs> yeah, forward yeah. thinking traditionalism uh-huh. Sure. Uh-huh. that, uh, you know, you don't need to hide the woman, put up, you know, dividers and put them in a room and we can't see anything. You know, it's a tinted glass, all this good stuff. How do you understand gender relations, especially because you, you, you worked in the MSA, you were part of the MSA. Yeah. Where, you know, typically things are much more lax. So how, how do you understand gender relations and, and what is allowed and not allowed, if you want to dig into that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, you know, the authority on what is allowed and what is no, not. No, but from right. your perspective is what I'm interested yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. So here, you know, at MIC, um, like you mentioned, I mean, put, <laughs> this, is a, this is a good exercise. Put yourself, put yourself in the shoes of a sister. Right. You know what I mean? Do you want to come to the masjid where you're sitting in a room, you don't see the imam, you don't, you barely hear him, the microphone cuts out. Of course. They might give you like a little, you know, small TV screen. If you're lucky, most places don't even have that. You know, yeah. if they're technology capable, they'll put a little TV screen. I've had many sisters tell me in those masajid, those typical masajid are like this. Why am I going to come here to watch him on a tiny screen when I can <laughs> do that at home? Yeah. And then at home, I don't have to wear hijab. You know, I'm sitting, I'm comfortable, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? I'm not secluded. And a lot of times the room is dark, dingy. You know what I mean? It's, it needs care. It needs maintenance. Why am I going to do that? I want to do that. If I was a sister, I'd be, I'd be the first one not to go to the masjid. And it seems as if we're, we're kind of sending that message. We don't want you here. And we never want to send that, especially when people are also, we're begging, yani in essence, mm-hmm. a lot of the masajid have the mentality to put off the vibe that they're begging people to come, which, okay, it's, it, it is there. We are. We want people to come to the masjid. We build all these beautiful buildings and then they're empty. La, we don't want this. We want people to come. If we want them to come, let us accommodate them as much as possible with, within what is allowed. Like what did the Prophet's masjid have? Did it ever have a barrier or a partition right. or putting them, you know what I mean, in a secluded place where they don't have access? No, we don't believe in this. So we're trying to revive that prophetic tradition within boundaries, obviously. So we're not like praying shoulder to shoulder next to the sisters. Here, you know, in the main prayer hall, um, in the regular five daily prayers, if a sister comes and prays behind the men, that's not a problem. She'll come, she'll pray, she'll leave. And because we've, we've, and but this was practice at the time of the Prophet <laughs> That same sister is somebody's wife. She's somebody's sister. She's somebody. So we care for her. She's not now seen as an object like, oh, scandalous. Why is she here? La, I know she's somebody's mother. She's somebody's sister. She's somebody's, you know what I mean? She has a family. She's not an object of, you know what I mean? Of, of, um, lust or desire or whatever right, she's right. here to worship you know we're at a masjid she's praying behind you she's proper hijab she'll pray she'll leave you know what i mean like and we have the upstairs for them as well in fact the upstairs here the the balcony was actually put in at the request of the sisters not the brothers hmm. it delayed the project for about nine months <laughs> wow in the initial plans because you can see it it's right here yeah um in the initial plans we didn't actually have an upstairs um, sisters came and they said, look, on Friday especially, the sisters are going to be pushed way to the back. And so they wanted a way so that they can still be towards the front, but upstairs. And we said, okay, that's fine. Yeah, that's If that's what you guys want, that's what you guys want. So we added it later. Um, yeah. Well, so, some folks would say that Mus- Muslim women are not supposed to pray in the masjid anyway, based on their understanding of a hadith. Which is what? The hadith that the, the best prayer for a woman is at home. Okay. 
So do you want to explain that yeah, for so us, maybe? It, for, yeah, so it, from an Islamic paradigm, we don't just take solitary hadiths without understanding them completely comprehensively. Right. So there's another hadith that says that, yeah, yeah, O the servant of Allah, the male servants, do not prevent the female servants of Allah from the houses of Allah. Mm-hmm. This hadith was narrated by Abdullah ibn Umar. And Imam al-Nawi, uh, and also, yani, even uh, be, before him, Imam Muslim, they put it in the chapter of um, adhering to the sunnah of the Prophet and the permissibility of cutting off people if they don't adhere to this. So it's mm-hmm. a weird chapter. You're like, what? So the chapter heading is in Riyadh Salihin, where he says that we're going to put it in this chapter. Why? Because the continuation of the hadith. So who narrates this hadith? Abdullah ibn Umar. Abdullah ibn Umar. Right. Abdullah ibn Umar lived to be very old. We know he was he died in his 80s. Mm-hmm. So he's one of the Muammirin, one of the long Sahaba, and he consulted them. And this is why he saw a lot of the change and stuff. Um, his son Bilal, Bilal ibn Abdullah ibn Umar. So this is Umar's grandson mm-hmm. and the son of Abdullah. He tells his own father, "Wallahi inna lanam na'hun." He tells his dad, "La, we will prevent them." He doesn't want his wife and his daughters to go to the masjid. And his father gets angry at him. His father's old. His father's like in his upper 70s at this point. Mm-hmm. And tells him, Aqulu lak, I tell you, qala, qala wa li I tell you what the messenger says, that you shouldn't prevent them. If they want to go to the masjid, they should be able to go to the masjid. And you're telling me, no, we will prevent them? How can you say this? He says, this is what I'm saying. He says, Wallahi I'm not going to talk to you after this. And him, for him you know, to reject something that the Prophet very clearly said. Now, does he have a reason? Did he argue with him the reason? He didn't argue with him the reason. Meaning he understands, sure, it might be more rewarding in certain circumstances for a woman to pray at home, according to that understanding of the hadith. Mm-hmm. Some scholars don't actually hold that opinion. Mm-hmm. There are scholars, I think it was like Shatub and some others, who said that it's actually she gets the same reward as men, but it's preferable, meaning not more in reward, but it's preferable, etc., etc. And they have a way of understanding that hadith. But even then, he didn't even get into the details. He understands where he's coming from. He has a, he has a man. He has a ghira. He doesn't mm-hmm. want his woman to be seen. You know what I mean? She is, he doesn't want people to stare at her, etc., etc. He has that ghira. That's excellent. He didn't argue with him over the ghira. What he did argue with him is that the Prophet ﷺ is saying, you should not prevent them. Yeah. And you want to prevent them. And he's like, yeah. He's like, then I'm not going to talk to you after this. For five years, father did not speak to his son. Abdullah ibn Umar yeah. stopped talking to his own son and he died in that state. Wow. He never spoke to his son again over this hadith. <laughs> wow. So this is not a new, what I'm saying, I'm saying this, why? Because it's not a new issue. This is a very old issue. And for some reason, people have it very, um, it's very heated for them. Yeah. Um, we're trying to apply the original prophetic, you know what I mean? We want to make it as accommodating as possible without bending our principles. Um, so sisters are welcome to come they attend they can participate they ask questions all the time um, we try to make it as accommodating as possible because wallah I don't know I'm sure you've seen this how many sisters are on the verge of leaving the deen because of the way that they were treated in a masjid for sure how many sisters have not only this but they have an animosity against the masjid and anybody associated with the masjid many of the imams are like oh you imams you mashayikh you scholars because of the issue of the masjid. They do have this. And to be honest, in a lot of cases, I don't blame them. Wallah, if I was a sister and I'm forced to pray in a closet, the cleaning closet, yeah. this has happened. Wallah, literally, I've seen this. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, where are you putting me? Are you serious right now? This is all we can do, sister. Yeah, this is all you want to do. Mm. You could do more, but you don't want to. Yeah. It takes that willpower. For sure. Yeah, and, and just to add a little color, uh, uh, just another opinion. Uh, I believe Imam Ibn Hazm uh, held the position that the reason for that hadith it's not that it contradicts the other, but the one about they, that they should pray at home. But his, his position is that the Prophet was, was giving that directive towards the child-rearing woman. And so that's, that's, that's his opinion on, on, on the situation. Uh, just, just to stay on the same topic here, but um, another, another uh, uh, topic that I, that I wanted to, to ask you about. What, what is allowed in Islam in terms of men and women that are non-mahram to each other? Obviously, khalwa is called out specifically, seclusion. That there's this idea that when a man and a woman are alone in a room together, the third of them becomes the shaitan. Mm-hmm. However, is, is the question is, <laughs> the question no, is, I was laughing because there was a there was a married guy uh-huh. who heard the hadith without he didn't hear the context. He just heard He's like, ah, that explains why my wife is always angry at me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Because he was assuming you know that shaitan is is there and he's the one who's. Uh-huh. And then the Sheikh had to tell him, La, this is, you know, when they're not married. If they're married, there's no Shaitan. It's like, yeah, Sheikh, Shaitan is there even when you're married. <laughs> wow. Because of the marital conflict, Danny, that's happening. Right, I hear so. you. I hear you. So, w- w- what's allowed in terms of non. Okay, so some people hold the position that they shouldn't even look towards each other, they should not be in the same room together. You know, so much so that uh, one time a guest speaker was brought at an MSA event. And uh, the way it was set up, right, is that men are on one side and women are on one side. The scholar comes and he's sitting at the front. He takes his chair, turns his back towards the woman and faces the men. So I want to understand, is, is this something that you're supposed to do? You can't even <laughs> look towards them. You have to face the men. Like what's, what, 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 if, if you can. That's his opinion. That. That's his opinion. Mm-hmm. And it, remember, in everything, in a lot of these issues, especially the issue of this, you know, gender relations, Amrun ijtihadi. It is yeah. an ijtihadi issue. Number one. Number two. Yura'a fiha halun nas. The situation of the people should also be in consideration. Amja released a really a, a good paper on this topic. I read it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sheikh Salawi and many others. They 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 you know expanded on it. The age of the people is important. The context. What's being done. What's the situation? All these things need to be taken into consideration when it comes to, for example, اختلاط, you know, them, you know, mixing the, the genders, mixing and whatnot. Yeah. Um, complete seclusion has a lot of cons, right? Complete free mixing, hick, has a lot of cons as well. And Islam advocates kind of a middle path, right? There are, there are, yani, obviously our marketplaces are all mixed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But there's certain decorum that's, that's done. There's certain ways of behavior, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if a person doesn't want to even look at the sisters, I understand where he's coming from. You know what I mean? He just doesn't want that temptation. He doesn't want to even look or even have a thought, even in, in, in just a remote thought even cross his mind. Some other people, that thought won't even cross their mind if they're talking because of some, they're, they're, you know what I mean? Just their cultural background, their mindset, their mentality, it's not even going to happen. But is it haram though? Is this what I'm asking? To what? To look. At a woman? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. You know what I mean? Especially if she's properly covered, mm-hmm. how are you going to deal with her? How did the Prophet deal with any woman who ever came and asked him a question? For sure. Did he not see her? You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Now, there's a difference between a look and a look. 100%. Does that make sense? 
So if I'm looking with a certain intention, you're, that's on you. That's your intention. Mm-hmm. This is why the Prophet when he said, Ta'ali, you know, you know, inadvertently, he just saw a woman and she happened to be very beautiful and she was decorated, etc. He has no business with her, but he just saw her. He said, don't look again. You know, the first you saw her, okay, خلاص, now look away. You know what I mean? Yeah. But if I'm dealing with somebody and I'm, you know what I mean? They're asking a question. You know what I mean? I'm, I need something for them. Usually we used to teach this back, you know, in the day, um, PPL. I don't know if you're familiar with no. the, the acronym. Meaning in, in gender relations, mm-hmm. it's public, purposeful, and limited. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's not done in private. Like you said, khalwa, it's haram. So it's in public. Public also means that there's somebody there that can do al-amr bil-maruf and al-munkar. So if I say, oh, I went to a movie theater with her, and that's public. Yeah, that's not public, bro. <laughs> there's nobody there that's going to do amr bil-maruf and al-munkar. There's nobody that's going to stop you from doing something haram. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So public has to, you know, has criteria. Purposeful, meaning there's a purpose. Why are you talking to this sister? Why is there like this gathering, et cetera, et cetera? You know what I mean? It was funny to me. There's a masjid where um, people had issue with sisters coming to the masjid and participating, but they don't have issue that happening in like a business uh, setting. You know what I mean? Yeah. The fact that yeah, in that scenario that you just mentioned earlier, the sisters on one side, the brothers on one side. Right? There are some places but they won't even allow that. The sisters have to be behind or the sisters are not even invited. Um because even sitting on the side is a problem or they'll put a partition. I understand. If you want to put a partition, I understand that. I'm not yani, I'm not I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad. <laughs> yeah. But what I'm saying is um the situation of the people has to be taken into consideration. You know, you're dealing with people, a lot of these people that were putting the partition and stuff like this in their day-to-day life when he's working in corporate America or he's going to college or he was in high school. It doesn't reflect reality. Like there's it, one reality at the masjid, which is completely divergent from the reality that a Muslim lives. Some Muslims live, not all. You know what I mean? Like many Muslims, yeah, they'll have to, you, you'll have to deal with, you know what I mean? People of the opposite gender all the time. I understand mm-hmm. that. That's not a problem. You know what I mean? All, all these things. This is why I'm saying the situation of the people has to be taken into consideration. We're not going to be opening up the door just because we say, oh, we live in America. And everything is already freely mixed, so we're going to freely mix everything else. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know what I mean? This whole idea of walling them off, putting them in a separate room. If a sister, here's the thing. Ultimately, though, there are sisters who are more comfortable like that. I completely understand that. We should have that option available. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is why, like, in our old building, we did have a door that was specific for the sisters. If the sister want to use that door, they can. And some sisters did. Majority didn't, but some sisters were more comfortable doing that. Um, we have to accommodate these different tastes. Some sisters feel much better, you know what I mean, in that. And even to be honest, like even in our social gatherings, mm-hmm. if I'm inviting friends over, typically the ladies will be sitting on one side and the guys will be sitting in another side or in another room. And I'll tell you, a lot of the guys feel more comfortable that way. You know what I mean? And I do too. Um, I like that gather. Now, are we completely walled off? Like, I'll never see anybody. I'll never see. Nah, you know, you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. But at the same time, there's this decorum. There's this. You know what I mean? We 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 do understand that there has to be um, distances there for a reason. Um, and there's a lot of wisdom in it. This whole issue with like Me Too and you know what I mean, uh, harassment and people uncomfortable and people saying things that are inappropriate and people, you know what I mean, or people developing feelings for somebody else just because of proximity. This happens. So Islam is good in that it allows that middle path for these things not to happen. 
and we can you know, be better off that way, inshallah. I hear you, Zekhlefe. Um, but let's just pause for a second, and then we can uh, okay. jump back in if we need to. Three, two, one. Okay, awesome. Uh, I think we should just stop here because uh, I know you're, you're running on a tight schedule. And, uh, man, it's freezing in here. Um, and then we can, uh, we can inshallah, if there's another time that we can do this, let me know. Because I, I, we, we stopped. I didn't go into the other questions like, what about touch? What about other things? What about a Muslim man that's trying to get married? Like, wh what is allowed when he's courting the, the woman and all that good stuff? So, inshallah, next time we can, we can dig into that. So, Zekalakha for your time. Uh, I appreciate you inviting me. And uh, I don't know, do you, did you want to have a, a closing thought? No, no, no. I, I wanted to, you know, um, I hope your stay was good with us. Oh, for sure. You enjoyed Memphis. For sure. Um, and inshallah ta'ala, yeah, we can, have a, we can have a future conversation, inshallah ta'ala. Um, appreciate you bringing me on, and I hope uh, it uh, proves beneficial, inshallah. I'm sure it will, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. and we'll see you next time. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum